You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Well, if you are new, my name is Simon. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. I want to thank you for coming. If we haven't met, I'd love to meet you either in Fellowship Hall or in the back. Shake your hand. Hear how you stumbled into our church family. Uh, So each year we celebrate Advent. And if you don't understand that language, that's okay. Advent just simply means arrival or coming. That's all that it really means when we say that word. And as Christians, we look at that in two different ways. That's sort of how we see it. We remember the first coming of Jesus coming into the world. Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Christ that would come, that would make peace with God and man, who would be the bridge. He would become a sacrifice. He would lay his life down and give the gift of salvation for all that would call on his name. And men and women waited Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for this figure, this Christ, this Messiah to arrive. And so when Jesus showed up as a baby, they celebrated the first advent, the coming of the Christ, the one, the promised hope that they would have. The second advent is still about the same guy. It's still about Jesus. It's just where we are now, that we are also in an advent, a a coming or an arrival period in our own hearts that we long for. And it's really about the second coming of Jesus Christ, that he is going to come again, that he did not leave us, he did not abandon us, that he's not just like, hey, good luck with everything. I took care of the sin thing. I hope it works out. But he is coming back and he will deal with all the sin for forever. And those that belong to him, will be with him for eternity, either when he comes and we're here at the second coming or when we pass from this side of eternity to the next. And so there is this longing, this waiting that we can relate to those of the past with where we are now. And the hope is that it will be as it was in the garden. And that's a good thing. So we anticipate that and we celebrate that as we build towards Christmas. And obviously this week is focused on hope. And all hope really is, is a feeling of expectation or desire for a certain thing to happen. That's, that's all hope truly is. As Christians, we hope in the fact that he is coming back. That's what we hope for. The hope that we have is that when we stand before him, we do not fear him. We are not expecting judgment for those who have placed their life in Jesus. Our hope is that Jesus paid it in full on the cross and we can stand before him in his glory knowing that we have been saved by his son. Now, as we move into our section this year of Advent, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Acts. We kind of jump around at different times of how we do Advent, but this year we're going to continue to work through Acts, and I think we're going to see a lot of hope in this section today. Uh, Paul is kind of focused on the second Advent, if you will, to a certain degree and a certain level. The reality of that when we die, where are we going to be? What's that going to look like? What, what is that second coming going to play out for each individual? And his knowledge of the truth of the gospel actually drives him to share this life-saving truth with everyone that he comes in contact with because he truly believes what God says about who we are, who he is, and eternity, and how we can be with him. So... If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to Acts 17. If you don't have a Bible and you're new, there's Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that as a gift. We'd love for you to have God's word so you can study it anytime. So we're going to start in Acts 17. We're going to be in verses 16 through 34 this morning. 
and we'll probably kind of hang out there for the most part. So if you're wondering if we're going to jump around, not a lot today, just going to stay in this section. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day and those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Aragopagos, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now the Athenians and the foreigners who lived in that area spent their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragopagos, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." <clears throat> Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus, the Aphrodite, and the woman named Damarius, uh, and others with them. Let me pray, and we're going to go ahead and jump into this passage this morning. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, I thank you that we have a hope a hope in you, a hope that will not fade, that will be tarnished, that will last an eternity, that what your son accomplished on the cross finished everything that you had asked him to finish. Lord, that we have a hope that we, we will not receive your wrath, that your son took that wrath for us on the cross, that he gives us his righteousness so we can live in a way that reflects who you are, and that we can live in a way that is about your mission, which is to take the message of the gospel, your son, to the ends of the earth. Lord, where we need to be convicted, convict our hearts. Where we need to have hope this morning, maybe we came in hopeless, that we would have hope. Where we need to be encouraged, that you would bring encouragement. Holy Spirit, I do ask that as I to preach this morning that anything that's on my notes would only be from you. If it's not, take it from my notes, take it from my mind, my mouth. And I ask that you would work this morning as we proclaim who you are, 
We love you. We pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. <clears throat> well, I want to thank Justin and David for the last two weeks of bringing God's word. Thank you guys very much. You did a fantastic job. Absolutely. <clears throat> How blessed are we to have so many godly men that can come up here and preach God's word. That's a, that's a, a rarity in a lot of churches. Um, Justin, as he walked through last week, he talked about these two cities um, Paul was in, and he really contrasted the way that they both responded to the gospel. Uh, one group was extremely hostile, while the other group said, hey, let's explore scripture and make sure that this is true. And yet, through that, regardless, he still got run out of those cities like he always kinds of does. And we find that he gets on a boat and he makes his way to Athens. There should be a map up there. I got my favorite little tool out here today. And so this is where they were in Bria and then Thessalonica. And then we see he hops on a boat. He comes down this way and he lands in Athens. So he takes a pretty long journey to get away from the heat. And this is where he ends up landing right over there in Athens. So we need to understand the heart of Paul, but to understand the heart of Paul, we need to understand the heart of God because that's really where his focus is. And so what breaks the heart of God? Well, you need to understand Athens and, and what that city was like. Athens was this vast, huge city. Uh, Athens really, really became the, the center of philosophy and art and architecture and drama, but it was really about culture. And so what Athens did shaped and formed the culture of the world around them. Um, think of... Uh, like financially, the world is shaped by New York and the stock market, right? And you look at how culture is shaped at times by Hollywood and how they uh, make movies and what they say, and what they promote, right? It's very much like that. And Athens had that same kind of idea. Now, it wasn't in its prime glory when Athens was kind of a, a major player on the scene because Rome had come in and taken them over, but yet it was still a sight to see. It was an intellectual hub where ideas and philosophies were shared, discussed, and debated. It was Greek. It was about as Greek as you could possibly get. And when I'm talking about being a Greek culture, it was a polytheistic culture. And if you're like, that's a big word, I don't know what that means. All that means is they worshiped a lot of gods. A lot of gods, like to the max. Whereas we would say that we are a monotheistic belief as Christians, we worship one god. That's who we are. Few places have ever been able to compare with the amount of gods and idol worship that took place in Athens. Um, some have said that Thailand has a lot of gods, a lot of temples that you can go and you can worship at. They're in the hundreds to maybe a thousands. Well, man, that's nothing compared to what Athens was like and how they worshipped. Um, there's a historian called Pliny. This historian, he says this about Athens during that time. In the time of Nero, Athens had well over 25,000 public statues and another 30,000 in the Parthenon alone. It was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. So, Think about that statement. There are so many statues. Like, oh, we have statues too all over the United States. No, 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 no. These are statues to worship, to bow down to, to give homage to, to make sacrifices to. That's what this is about. There were so many, you would get lost looking around finding them. And what you read, it's just interesting. Paul does what he always does, right? Paul's got a plan. Show up, 
Go to town, find a synagogue, talk to the Jews, go find Gentiles and talk to the Gentiles. That's his, that's his MO. You're like, how's he do it? That's how he does it. He does the same thing every single time. And he goes to the marketplace and the marketplace would have been like, think about this. We don't have, um, like we have the internet, we have technology, we have phones, we have these shops, all these things we can do. Everything took place in the marketplace. Judge, jury, philosophy, teaching, uh, commerce, stocks and trade, all of that took place there. So if you were going to do something, you went there. Entertainment was there. Everything took place in the marketplace. And so Paul went into the marketplace and he found um, devote persons. He's talking about Gentiles who actually know of who God is and worship God. That's who he's talking to. And if you read in verse 16, it says that Paul has this tangible response to this idol worship. He walks into the city, he's walking around, he's like, this is overwhelming, and he has a response. It says that he was provoked. Now, that word provoked, it can be hard to kind of understand, but it's to be provoked or to be or become incited or stirred up in one's emotions, feelings, or reactions. It can be positive or negative. And what we find with Paul, it's actually both. That there's two things happening simultaneously in him. And so he sees that there's a problem. And so he's provoked in a negative way, but he also sees an opportunity. So he's provoked in a positive way to actually share the hope of who Jesus is. And maybe you've asked the question. As you read the Bible, you should ask this one question all the time. It's a really short question. Anyone know this? Why? You should be asking the question, why, all the time when you read the Bible. Why did they do that? Why did they go there? Why did they say that? Why was that important? That why gives insight as to what's going on. So you should ask the question, why was Paul so worked up? Why was Paul so heartbroken at the same time? It's because he understood what was going on. See, he believed Scripture. He believed what God was saying. And so because he believed what God had said, he also believes what Jesus proclaimed. He looked around and he saw these men and women have all these idols. You know what that says? They're searching. They're looking for something. That they realize that there's something missing. And he sees not only are they looking, they're looking so hard, they're looking in a million different directions. And the problem is that they're looking in all these different directions. They're missing the point that they are looking and they are lost and they are not seeing the truth of what's before them. When you, you ever been to another country? You ever go to these other countries sometimes and um, depending on where it's at, you can see that they usually different cultures and countries have different worship, don't they? You go there and you see the different things that they worship, the things that they're about and where they go. How do you respond when you see that? You ever ask that? Like, well, how do I respond? Do you go... There's a lot of lost people here. These people need Jesus. These people are searching and, and, and they're led astray and, and, and they're in trouble if they continue down this path. Or do you go, wow, what an interesting and rich culture. That's so interesting. Look at all these things. So colorful. See, both responses say something. Both responses communicate a deeper truth. One understands that this world is dying without Christ and that those who are worshiping all these other idols and all these other gods 
are destined to be separated from God for forever and will have to pay and give an account for their life at some point. The other, it's subtle, but what it's really saying is that, you know, they're sincere, they're trying, they're looking, you know, I'm sure it'll all work out in the end. All gods lead to God. It's not a big deal. It'll be okay. Just let them do their thing and it's all right. Or you're saying, I don't really believe what the gospel says. See, these responses say a lot about who we are and what we do. But at the heart of what we need to understand is we need to have the heart and the eyes of Jesus when we walk into culture. We need to have the heart and the eyes of the Father and what he actually did so we could be reunited with him and what that costs. In Matthew 9, it actually has this section where it shows the heart of Jesus and what that looks like. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now listen, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Do you know how Jesus sees us? As sheep. And as he sees those that aren't near him and close to him, he sees us as sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd is a dangerous thing. We call them food. That's what we call a sheep without a shepherd. That's what they are. They are vulnerable to the environment. They are vulnerable to attacks. They are led astray easily because they don't know the voice of the one true shepherd. They don't know who's there to protect them, to pin them in, to keep danger away. That's all of us before Jesus. Just sheep wandering around until our shepherd came and brought us in. You have to understand that we were all lost at some point. None of us were born into Christianity. None of us were born saved. We're actually, we're all born sinners, as a, as a matter of fact. And at some point, God lovingly reached in and changed our heart and drew us into him. And he can do that a, a bunch of different ways. But primarily, we see that he's doing that through people coming and sharing the gospel with us, isn't it? Someone shared the truth of Jesus Christ at some point in every believer's life, and they had to come to a decision. He's saying there's a harvest out there. But then he says there's a problem. What's the problem? There's not enough workers. He's like, oh gosh, I wish God would send somebody. What's he really saying? I'm sending you. You are going to be the ones that are going to go out in the harvest. You have to be about God. And the thing that we need to understand is what led Jesus to do what he did is compassion leads to action. As Jesus had compassion on us, it led him to action. The action that we celebrate is what we call Easter, that he went and died on the cross for our sins so that we can be saved. We as well as Christians are little Christ, which means our lives need to be seeing the world for what's truly going on and have compassion on that world. 
Yes, it's, it's easy to hate the world around us, but do you have compassion for the world? Because if you have compassion for the world, it will lead you to action to take the hope of Jesus Christ to a dying and broken world. Second point, God opens doors to the faithful. Paul's an interesting guy. Um, he, he's one of those guys in the Bible you're like, He's like Superman when it comes to Christianity. He's on this high mountain. He's un unbelievable, and no one can be like him. We can do that a lot because we have so many writings about him and what, what God did through him and what took place. You know that he was really just a guy who was faithful to what God had called him to do? God said, I want you to go and preach the gospel, and I want you to just keep going until I tell you to stop, and then you're going to stop, and you're going to preach the gospel, and then you're going to go to the next place and preach the gospel. So here's a quick note. Paul was just being faithful here. And then Paul moved on. He was faithful here. And then he moved on. And he was faithful here. Paul's just like you and me. Human being, flesh and blood, sinful person, saved by grace. Same Holy Spirit that indwelled Paul indwells every Christian who's ever lived. Same Holy Spirit. Like, do you, do, you, do you look at it that way? Do you, do, you, do you understand, like, Paul's just a guy. Paul just interacted with people wherever he went. Do you understand that God has called you to be faithful where you are? We get to interact with people all day long. Anyone got a job? Anyone live in a house and have neighbors? Anyone have the ability to, to walk and talk and, and converse with somebody? Like we, we all do, right? We have the same opportunities that Paul has. We have the same God. We have the same gospel. We have the same Holy Spirit. Do you view your life this way? We use terms all the time to describe this. Um, you guys are probably familiar uh, with, with Mike's, he used the word uh, oikos, Right? That was, the, that was the term that you guys knew. I tend to use the word sphere of influence. You can say where I'm placed. You can call it a donkey. I don't really care what you call it. But whatever it is, you've been placed in a certain place in time and in history around certain people. And God has called you to that. Do you, do you view your world that way? I have the message of hope to take to the world. I mean, think about it. Where is God calling you to be faithful? Who is he calling you to be faithful to? Your neighbor's like, I hate my neighbor. That's probably the guy then. He's probably one God's called you to be faithful with. Your coworker, teacher, boss, children, friends, your spouse, mechanic, barista, gym partner. We can just keep going, right? We are called to be a city on a hill, that we are a light in a dark world that our lives are meant to be a light in darkness, that we have truth and that we have hope to shine everywhere else. You come on Christmas Eve, you're gonna see how that light works when all of us start proclaiming that. What would happen if you were faithful with where you are right now? Because here's the thing with Paul. We look at Paul all the time and go, he did all these things. You know what we should be focused on? 
when he was here, he just did this one step. Because every time that Paul stepped out in faithfulness, what did God do? He opened another door, didn't he? And then Paul walked through that door and he was faithful in that moment. And then God opened another door and he was faithful in that moment. Imagine the doors that God wants to open in your life if you're faithful right now with where he's placed you. Imagine the ripple effect. Imagine the change of heart and life that you could see take place if you were just faithful now. So we see that Paul goes, he goes to the marketplace and he shares, and these two guys come up to him. Um, two guys with very different views of how the world works in philosophy. Uh, Epicureanism was a system of thought that asserted that there was no connection between people and divine. This belief was expressed in a desire to seek contentment and satisfaction to avoid pain and discomfort. That's what Epicureans believed. Epicureanism uh, began with Epicurus in uh, 341 through 270 BC. He argued that the world was made of uh, atoms and the world was purely material. Epicureans attempted to free people from the idea of the gods, the afterlife, and the fear of death. The only value that remained was the physical reality of the individual. And thus the individual was freed from fear to pursue what truly gave pleasure. Epicurus stressed that contentment and nobility produce the best, most enjoyable life. And the more I have meditated on this belief system, I cannot see anything more clear in today's age than that belief system. Do what you want to do, make whatever makes you happy, follow your arrow, believe in yourself, chase your heart, don't let anyone tell you what, no, whatever makes you happy, you can be anything you want to be, you enjoy life. Does that not sound like what I just read? Just go for it, live your best life now. Now the Stoics were a little bit different. Stoicism was essentially a pantheistic system of thought that uh, prioritized logic over all other, other facilities, all about the mind and thinking and understanding. But Stoicism was founded by Zeno in the third century. Contrary to Epicureanism, Stoicism contended that the physical universe is empowered by a reasoning force known as logos, which connected the divine with the material. Ethically, Stoics attempted to live in accordance with the natural laws they observed uh, and systematized them. So, they were more of there is some kind of logic was, was the understanding, was the reasoning force. Um, you're going to get dealt your cards in life, whatever they may be. You accept them. You embrace the, for lack of a better term, the suck in life. Whatever sucks, you just embrace that. You deal with that and you move forward with that. So if you look at some of those beliefs, you can do that. I'm not going to go into a lot more at that. But he shares the gospel. Paul shares the gospel with these two different guys. What do they call him? A babbler. You're just a babbler. Um, it's a weird word. What does it mean? So babbler means one who picks up seeds. That is bizarre. Derived from an older and less common meaning of Lego to pick up, which I wish my kids would have done when they were younger. I did, that landed. I didn't think it would. Um, so the term then suggested one who picks up ideas like a chicken pecks its seeds and then sprouts them off without fully understanding them. Meaning, it was an insult. It wasn't a good thing. 
And so they look at Paul like, you're an uneducated, mishmash, pishposh of ideas. You make no sense. Is Jesus' resurrection? Uh-uh. But here's the thing. What happened? God opened a door. Even though they ridiculed him and mocked him, he could be like, oh, I failed. Nope, God's like, I got another step for you. And he's gonna go and share. So my third point is boldness in the presence of man. So in this section, we see that he goes to Aragopagos and Paul is standing before all these very powerful men of that day, rich men of that day, educated men of that day, um, well-studied men of that day. And they wanna hear what Paul has to say. And what we see is that Paul gives us this model for kind of how to share the gospel and how to contextualize the gospel for any group of people. Again, you're like, I don't really understand what you're saying when you're talking about contextualizing the gospel. What does that mean? Think of it this way. It means, how can you share the gospel message with a businessman or businesswoman from New York and then share that exact same message with a tribesman in Papua New Guinea? How do you do that? Well, it's called conceptualization. We have to be able to put it in the proper context so that they will understand it. Same message, not a different message. Different delivery process and how you bring that message to them. And you know what I love? And you've, we've seen it. It started to happen more and more as Paul shares. There's no one right way to share the gospel. There is one gospel, but there's no one right way. There's lots of different ways to share the gospel. You're like, well, I don't do it like them or I don't do it like that. So I feel guilty and I feel bad and I get beat. No, no. We're just called to share the gospel. And he will give us that ability. I think Paul was just so great at understanding cities that he walked into. He would walk into these cities and these towns and these villages and he was able to pay attention to what the city desired. What was the heartbeat of the city? What was the ethos of that city? He could walk in and see it like that. He understand the hurts of the city, seeing what people chased after, what they put their hope in, what they put their worth in, what they found their identity in. And then he was able to bring the gospel to that specific context so they could understand fully what the gospel is and what Jesus did for them and how that saves them from where they currently are. If you don't know people, what they're dealing with and what they're going through, what lies they may be believing from the world, how are you going to speak truth to it? You're kind of just throwing darts at a, at a, at a giant dartboard, hoping that you hit something, aren't you? The more you're able to understand who you're speaking to, what they value, what they've put their hope in, the easier it is to bring in the truth and the knowledge of Jesus Christ to that particular situation. So he looks around and he sees all these idols. And you're like, well, that was Simon, that's them. We don't have these statues. We're not worshiping all these idols. Hold on. The idols was just the end result of what the deep heart desire was in that individual. All of these gods and all of these statues represented something that those individuals wanted in their life. It was beauty, it was money, it was power, it was uh, physical, uh, whatever, it was fertility, it was harvest. All of these gods represented something that they were desiring to get. And so they would manifest these in these statues, give it a name, call it a God, but at the heart of it, it's about the heart desires. Every idol, that we don't have physical idols, we have millions of idols in our life. 
What do you chase after? What do you desire? What do you find your hope in? What if you had this one thing, life would be better? What's that one thing? Well, if you can honestly answer that, most likely that's a potential idol in your life. And you have to ask, man, what is that? See, Paul knew that they were not there to worship the God. They were there to get from the God. That was the problem. I just want my thing. Um, If I do these things for you, you got to give me this thing. Like, I do this, you give me that, and we're all good, and then I can worship you, and it's all great. It wasn't about being connected to the Father. It wasn't about the love of the Father. So Paul's message is this. I'll try to zip through this here. I'm already going long. Uh, He says, I see you're very religious. What's he really saying? I see you're searching. I see you're seeking after something. I want to say this. um, There's a lot of people that are very spiritual. Very spiritual person. I'm into spiritual things. Paul understands this very key idea. Being very spiritual and having spiritual experiences does not save you. I just, can you just sit in that for a second? Being spiritual does not save you. Being spiritual does not take care of the sin issue in your life. But we are designed to worship. And we are designed to be close to the image of which we were made, which is the image of God. It's our right place to be with him. The desire is written on our hearts. He's saying, this is, you guys, are, you, you, you want the thing that you should want because it's written on your heart. The next thing is that he does this push into something that he, he, he observes in this situation. He knows an altar said to the unknown God. Paul's just showing us how he does what he does. And so they had this statue or this altar that said, to the unknown God. They didn't know what it was because it's unknown. And he's like, well, you guys are so worried about not worshiping the right God that you're not going to get this thing from this God. You made an altar that says, we don't know who you are, but we got you. We're covered you. So don't, don't shoot lightning at us. Don't mess with us. We're trying. We just don't know you yet. But when we do, we'll make a statue and then it'll be good. And so Paul sees this and he realizes how lost they really are. He's like, hey, yeah, guys, I'm going to tell you who this unknown God is. I'm going to describe this, the very God that you're looking for. Since this God is different from all other gods, he's made everything that we see. He's omnipotent. It means um, he creates everything. He controls everything. Uh, he is sovereign over all things of this world. He doesn't live in temples and need to have images made of rock or wood or metal. He's so much greater than that. You can't encompass him in such, we would call it trash. Like you You can't take this trash and make anything that would resemble me at all and my glory. You can't do it. He's saying that this God is perfect because here's the thing. He's like, I don't need human hands to serve me. Which is a pretty powerful statement because if a God needs humans to serve him, it means that he is lacking, isn't it? It means that he can't do something on his own because these creation has to do something for him. God is perfect, completely perfect in and of himself in the Trinity. He says, I give all mankind breath and life. I hold all things together. Anyone who is alive, that is a gift from God that you should recognize today. And there is no life outside of him. John 10.10 would say that he gives life and he gives it abundantly. Separation from God is a loss of life. Connection to God gives us life. He points to the creation of Adam, which I think is really clever how he does that. Um, We love teams, right? 
Anyone watching football this week? If you're an Oregon fan, you're very, very sad. But we pick sides, don't we? I'm from America, I'm from Mexico, I'm, I'm from Canada, uh, I'm from China, I'm from Russia. I, we, just, we like our teams. But where does he start? Adam. What's he saying? This is a human problem, not a specific region problem. You all have this problem of sin. You all have this problem of disconnectedness. None of you are in a good spot. He says that God is in control of all things at all times. Every nation that rises and falls is based upon the will of God. And he points to the fact that you are seeking him out and you're, you're groping around in the dark trying to find him and you think that God's far away. And he's saying, no, God's omnipresent. He's close. He's everywhere all the time. Then Paul quotes uh, one of their, I love it. He's like, you're not gonna understand the Old Testament. You're not gonna understand the scripture of the Jewish people. So I'm gonna quote one of your, your lines. And he does a quote from a poem about Zeus. And the last line is, for we are all indeed his offspring. So they understood that they came from someplace. It's like, but you're missing it. You, you have the right idea. You just have the wrong God. You need to be connected to Yahweh. Now, Paul has their attention. He's now shown that there is a God that you don't understand and know. He's described this God to understand how great and mighty he is. But it's like there's more to it than that. He calls them to something. He calls them to repent. To, and repentance just means this, to reconsider. It's a great definition. To have a change of self, heart, and mind and abandon former dispositions and results in a new life, new behavior, and regret from former behavior and dispositions. Here's what I mean. If this is the way I'm living my life, these are the things I'm pursuing and chasing after, I'm going after those. When I repent of this way of thinking, living, believing, I turn and I go a new direction. To follow Christ means we repent of our old life, we repent of our sin, we turn to God and we go towards him. That's what it means. Why? Here's the story that's important. Because judgment is coming. There's an accountability for how we've lived our lives. Everything we've ever said, done, believed, thought, acted, we're going to be accountable for that someday. Where you've placed your worship, how you find your identity, where we found our salvation, we're all going to stand before God someday. There will be judgment. So for Christians, we're like, hooray, second advent. We're, bring it, come on, hurry up, already. Anyone lately ready? Yeah, big time ready. Really ready. For the non-Christian, the most terrifying day in the entire world. And what Jesus has done is actually taken that judgment, taken that wrath and place it on himself so you wouldn't have to. Then gives you his righteousness and all you have to do is call in the name of Jesus for salvation and you can be saved. And he says, there's a man who has, a, who has been appointed to bring this judgment. Talk about Jesus. He said, Jesus was killed for our sins, yet God raised him from the dead. Do you see, the, he talks about God. He says, there's a, there's a problem coming, but there's a solution through this guy. See, this is the gospel, right? You have to communicate it effectively. It means that Jesus was not just some guy. He wasn't just some teacher. He wasn't just some, you know, he's, he's really pithy. He's like Confucius. He hugs people a lot. He likes kids. No, there is so much more. He's God incarnate walked amongst us 
and he has been raised from the dead. And why is that so important? Think about this. If when we repent of our old life and put our new life in Christ, that means that whatever is happening with Christ is means happening with us now. If Jesus has been raised from the dead and our life is hidden in Jesus, what does that mean for us? It means that we too will be raised from the dead. We will not die. If, if Jesus is at the right hand of God in the presence of God, when we die, where are we going to be? In the presence of God. Do you see why this is so important? Your life has to be in something, not about something. It has to be. And anyone, at any time, if you've placed your life in Jesus, you will be saved. You will call him Lord. You will be with him for eternity. And there's three responses. The response is this. You can reject the truth. You can be intrigued by the truth. Or you can believe the truth. And those are the responses that we see. Some of the people saw that. They heard what he was saying. They're like, nah, I don't care. I'm not changing what I believe. I'm not changing what I do. I, I have my thing. I'm set. I got, a, I got a good thing going here. I ain't giving that up. Some said, well, interesting. I'll hear more about it. And then others believed. They believed Paul, and they placed their life in the life of Jesus. Dionysus and Damaris are two people that they give names for, but they said there was others as well. See, Paul brings these people to a future hope where there is no judgment, there is no wrath. They can now live the way that God has called them to through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, all this starts the same way it did for Paul. Be faithful where you are. Bring the message of hope with where you are. His faithfulness led to more opportunities because God was opening doors. He took his place to the marketplace. He had conversations. He made relationships. What's verse 17 say? He did this every day. Every day. See, the gospel may be personal to you because it's gotten you salvation, but it's never meant to be private. I'll say that again. The gospel may be personal to you, but it was never meant to be private. It's always meant to be shared. The, the entire New Testament goes over and over and over again about how they took the message forward to others. This is going to sound so countercultural right now, but I'm going to say it. It is unloving to not share Jesus with somebody. It is probably the most unloving thing you can do as a Christian. I know we live in a world that says, no, no, don't judge me. Don't tell me that I'm wrong. Don't tell me that something's off. You know, no, you, you can't do that. It is equivalent to seeing a man or a woman who is dying of dehydration and you have an unlimited supply of water at your disposal and you just refuse to tell them that you have water. My friends, there are people that are heading towards hell and you have the life-giving message of Jesus Christ, the water, living water that you can bring to them to show them the Savior. I'm not trying to guilt us. I'm trying to put things in perspective. See, Paul, he understood this. 
Why do you think there is such urgency in Paul's life? Because once you understand this idea, you look at the world completely different. Every interaction you have will be completely different. You can't help but go, I don't know if they know Jesus. I just want to make sure they hear the truth of Jesus. It's not your job to change them. It's not your job to change their hearts. It's not your job to convert them. It is your job to bring them the truth. That's all you're called to. I say, just be the mailman. Just be the mailman. I'm going to end this way as we get close to ending. The band can start to make their way up. Who's God calling you to reach out to? Who is it? Where is God calling you to be faithful? Who is he calling you to be faithful to? Here's what I would challenge you to do. On a piece of paper that you may have, on your note, write down a name of someone that that you believe that God has called you to be faithful to. Just write it down. Like, why don't I have paper? Go home, write it down, put it on a sticky note, put it on a, put it on a mirror in your bathroom, put it on, a, on something in your car, and just pray for that person and say, God, I want to be faithful. Would you please open doors so I can be faithful? And let's just see what God does in that. And maybe today you're here and you're like, I don't know Jesus, Simon. Okay, fair enough. You've got three options. You can reject what I just said. You can be interested and just kind of dance around it for a while, or you can believe. If that's you today, I would say this. We're gonna have elders on either side of the room. I'm gonna be in the front at the end. If you wanna talk with us about a personal relationship with Jesus, we wanna talk with you. We wanna point you to Christ so you would know too that you are saved and you're, there's no judgment, no fear anymore. Or if you just want prayer, you can come and say, I just need prayer. Come pray with us. We'd love to pray with you. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to pray and we're going to move into a time of communion and we're going to go from there. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the hope that we have in in you, Jesus. I think that you've given us the Holy Spirit to take the message of the gospel forward to other people, Lord. Lord, we really have the greatest hope that the world has ever seen or will ever see. Lord, I ask that you would empower us to be faithful, to share that message, to bring that hope to others that you surround us with. As we think about Christmas, without Christmas, there is no Easter. You came, you shared a message, and then you died for our sins. Lord, I pray that you would work in our lives, that you would have us think about those names, that you would allow us to see you for who you really are, that we would see the message, that we would believe the truth of what you've done, and that through that, Lord, that you would empower us to be those agents of change, that we would impact the people that you surround us with, that we would love them with your gospel. I pray this with, through your son's name, Jesus, amen.